Welcome to Jumpstarting IT Modernization in Government panel discussion, sponsored by Pegasystems. Here's today's host, Tom Temme. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Doug Averill, the Global Government Business Line Leader at Pega. Joe Paiva is the Chief Information Officer of the U.S. International Trade Administration. And Eric Mill, Senior Advisor, Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. And it's good to have you all here today. And we're talking about jump-starting modernization in government. And often the conversations center around hardware and servers and clouds and so forth. But really the purpose of all that is to run software. That's why all that exists. So we're going to try to concentrate on software and code. And it can get pretty deep when it comes to modernizing. So I guess we should start with a survey of federal modernizing with respect to applications uh, and where it looks right now, and then we'll delve in from there. And Joe, I think I'm going to start with you. Well, speaking just for the International Trade Administration, we're about 70 to 80 percent through the process of getting rid of all of our legacy code. Um, I don't think we'll have any more old government kind of systems hanging around uh, somewhere in the middle to end of next year. And how, how did you do that? I mean, what were the challenges there? So uh, for us, uh, the, the challenges are not technical at all. Um, they're actually just getting the business to adopt industry best practices. And by getting them to use industry best practices, we're allowed to use just commercial off-the-shelf software as a service applications. So we don't code anything anymore. I have a no-code rule. So we've done our transformation without writing code, and my folks aren't allowed to write code, and we're gonna keep it that way. So that's kind of it for us. So you just retired those applications and that code rather than try to, but I guess the question then is, knowing what some of the legacy systems had to do, did you try to replicate the logic in them uh, with someone else, or did you just go to whole new applications? No, we, 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 tried to, we tried to copy industry best practices. So part of the problem in government, right, the, the real root of the challenge to modernizing government IT is the challenge of modernizing government. For years and years, decades and decades, um, civil servants, government executives have written regulations and then gotten people to approve them. So then they come back five years later and they say, the reason we have to do all this this special way, the reason we can't do everything the way industry does is because we have all these regulations. Well, those are the guys who wrote the regulations in the first place, right? So, so part of it is just getting rid of all these stupid rules, right? Rules that add no value, but drive you to try to implement business processes that make no sense. If you're willing to just throw out kind of the, the silly regulations and just say, okay, 50, 60, 70% of what government does, someone in industry does a similar or the same thing and probably does it more efficiently, more effectively. So let's just adopt the government, the industry best practice, make government operate like a business. And when you get that through to people, then the software decision becomes easy. You just use whatever the Gartner Magic Quadrant leader is for the SaaS, best SaaS application for that thing, whether it's financial, statistics, CRM, or whatever, right? You just go commercial SaaS and follow the same kind of industry best practices that the Fortune 500 do. All right, uh, Eric, GSA you know, leads the way, offers the products and services to help agencies get to that modernizing state. What are you trying to get agencies to do with respect to their software these days? Sure, uh, I mean the, the major thing that we focus on in our work and in, in what we try to empower other agencies to do is agility, automation, and transparency and sharing. Right? It is, uh, speed is a security property. Uh, your ability to respond is a security property. You know, if you want to be able to, for example, patch critical vulnerabilities in 30 days, then hopefully you are deploying your software regularly more than, or less than 30 days on a regular basis. Right? But when you look at the kind of legacy systems that folks have in place, um, or, or the, the new what the systems that we're building now that will be legacy in five or ten years, um, you know that is sometimes hard uh, for agencies to do. There's a lot of muscle memory around things like change review boards. Um, there's a lot of instinctive reliance on having humans in the loop uh, for for having you know humans 
sign off on each step along the way. Um, and the biggest thing that we can really try to offer and that we can try to model are systems that are premised on automation and uh, and taking advantage of automation. So, you know, as an example, we, one of the the products that we've been developing is Cloud.gov. It is a platform as a service uh, cloud platform. It's based on the Open Source Cloud Foundry. Um, we provide that as a self-service operation, right? So you you can get a sandbox account with your .gov email without ever talking to us and actually deploy stuff. Uh, and then if you want to go to production, you know you will talk to us once to pay us, and then after that you'll never talk to us again. Hopefully, right? You will self-serve and you will automate things along the way. And that is, I think, a foundational property of IT modernization generally, because your ability to respond to threats, your ability to be flexible, and to avoid getting getting yourself trapped uh, in your own legacy, you're making new legacy systems, uh, and your ability just to modularize your world that you have around you is all premised on your ability to, to make changes to the, to the environment that you made for yourself. Got it, so the idea is not to build in such rigid systems that were hard-coded like we did, the agencies did in earlier decades. Uh, exactly, and I mean, it's, it, and I don't want to try to overstate how simple that is, because in fact, you know, there is a different kind of complexity that can be introduced by automation, uh, and and but that that complexity is seems far worth uh, far worth taking on because the payoff for that is is long term. The payoff for that is multi level, um, and the payoff for that is ultimately you know sleeping a lot better at night with your choices. Okay, uh, let's go to Doug uh, from Pega. What do you see across government? I mean, what are the issues that you see them dealing with? Yeah, it's exactly what Joe and Eric were talking about, about agility and automation. But I think ultimately what the evolution over the past few decades has been is from individual systems, individual applications, to really an understanding that a program and an agency, a department, has an overarching mission that needs to be fulfilled. So it's really um, increasingly about driving outcomes. So when we look at individual legacy systems, some might be 30, 40 years old, some might be five years old, but if they're not part of um, a cohesive layer, uh, uh, an understanding of how to drive outcomes for that program and that agency's mission, then they're, they're fractured. They're not considered part of um, the kind of core infrastructure. So really what we see uh, globally with, with governments, and especially here in Washington, is this um, understanding that these new set of tools, platforms, um, SaaS offerings, can, can really kind of bridge all these different systems and um, empower those outcomes. Yeah, so in other words, you start with your outcome as the objective as opposed to some transactional process as your as your goal. That's exactly right. And what, what Joe was talking about and a lot of the work that's happening at the GSA that Eric was referencing is really in support of that transformation. A lot of the change that's happening in government right now is really about understanding why we're there, what is that mission, and how do we then best fulfill it. Um, I, you know, what we saw in the, the 80s and 90s was really about let's build an application that fulfills this piece of the process. But as you start putting all the applications and the processes on the table, you realize you have this entire inventory of stuff. And at the end of the day, you really need to just fulfill missions. And part of what is pressuring government to do this faster, you know, Joe was talking about low code and no code, and let's um, really kind of look at the, the inventory of things that we have and figure out where do things fit. It's this desire to um, keep up with expectations, and that would be both the public, but also really our internal stakeholders. How do we get work done faster? How do we make um, people calling us, people emailing, chatting with us? How do we make that faster? And how do we actually show the executive and the legislative stakeholders that were being great stewards of the money. Okay, um, so maybe let's go back to the International Trade, uh, I almost said Association, <laughs> Administration, uh, and uh, give us an example maybe of, of an outcome where you would then back up to what it is you need in terms of application and processing relate so that the outcome that you wish is what happens. Yeah, so, so for us, it's very easy, right? We are extremely focused on creating sustaining jobs in the United States of America by promoting fair and equitable trade and enforcing trade rules where other countries don't play fair, right? And so, uh, so every day when I wake up and go to work, there's no, there's no question in my mind why I'm going or what we're trying to achieve. 
And what we've seen happen over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, for whatever reason, is more and more U.S. companies, exponentially more U.S. companies, have been impacted by competition from abroad. So it was okay to have a, a sleepy, little, sleepy little agency that hardly anyone heard of 30 years ago um, because you were servicing 10,000 or 20,000 companies a year. We today need to service hundreds of thousands of U.S. companies a year, right? And, and you can't get there with like the old-fashioned consulting, accounting, legal firm model, right? Mm -hmm. To be sure, our people are our greatest asset, and there's always going to be things that require that human touch, and there are always going to be, you're never going to sell a nuclear power plant on, you know, eBay, Right, so so there are there are these big projects. Right, there are big projects that always require people on the ground, and plus they're the source of all our intel. But for us, it's really if you're going to serve thirty thousand companies a year with this high touch service, how do you serve another three hundred thousand or five hundred thousand companies without adding headcount? Right. And so that's what for us has really been the measure is how do we provide service to more companies to this growing base of, of U.S. companies that need this support um, because other countries don't play fair, right? And unilateral disarmament doesn't work in the world of economics any more than it does in the military, right? And so, so that's kind of where we started, right? How do we help more U.S. companies fight back? And, and so then from there, you just back into, okay, you have customer journeys for different types of customers that need different help, and you have to build a web presence that supports that and build business processes that support that. that that's kind of how we do it. Yeah, I guess that gets to the whole idea, uh, Eric, of the uh, digital services where, I hate to use a cliche, but mass customizing for people. If you have 300,000 constituents, or in the case of some other agencies, 3 million or 300 million, uh, simply providing information at a website is no longer adequate for what it is people seek from a, from a federal organization. So how does this translate to the applications you have and the code you have and the data that you have generated by maybe all of those applications such that you can offer these kinds of digital, seemingly like they're helping me personally, services, even though it's on a mass scale and there isn't an individual, say, at the ITA, helping that individual small company. Well, well that's right. So, I mean, there's, there is still a lot of mission-driven uh, work in the U.S. government and federal agencies, you know, that, that COTS off-the-shelf software is, is not going to just solve for you out, out of the gate, right? There's still, there's work to be done. Um, you know, uh, maybe one of the examples is uh, as we work with the Federal Election Commission, um, and we've we both talked publicly about the work that we've done taking how they distribute campaign finance information, uh, and we've we've worked with them in deep partnership for several years now um, to to actually create something new, and that is we, so we we write a lot of code, um, but a big part of that is about transfer, right? So. It's not just about building it and kind of throwing it over the wall, right? The when we when we build something, then we we need to go the extra mile to really transfer that, make sure it lands with the agency, make sure that they are able to actually operate that themselves, that they have both the talent, the the skills and the culture and the policies necessary to support that sort of work. Um, we can't become a crutch uh, for them, uh, and then. We also, I mean, software is written for, for many more reasons than just, you know, developing a new thing from scratch and then running it, right? So uh, we have uh, an acquisition team at GSA in, in the Technology Transformation Service that has cross-functional teams that include engineers during our work helping people buy things and helping them manage the contract mm -hmm. and helping them see success, right? So an example of that is our work with, with the new Equip system. Um, that... Work has to happen somewhere. Management. Uh, that's right. Yeah, um, and with and with DoD, who's also running their infrastructure. Um, so that is that's work that has to happen somewhere, right? Somebody has to write that software, um, and there's always going to be a mix of people involved. You can't solve problems with a, a crack team of great engineers. You have multiple parties that are all working in concert to build something new to start and then to maintain it along the way. And the same principles apply to that, that apply to all, all kinds of work with technology. You make sure you build in agility, 
making sure that you're prioritizing reuse and sharing with people so that you're not siloing information or software, um, and you know, fundamentally making this, breaking down enough barriers where you don't have people's roles rigidly defined, right? Like the, it's not just the people whose title is software engineer or who are GS2210s that, are, that, that have some inkling of how the software works and some ability to, to modify it and react to it and oversee it. Um, so yeah, you mentioned that you want to make sure that agencies to which you send software that might have been coded under under a con, you know under having help from GSA, right. say maybe 18F or something like sure. that. You said uh, that they have to. You want to make sure that they have the skills and ability to mm-hmm. do that kind of work. What did you mean specifically to maintain the code? To maintain to it and continue developing it, right? I mean, whether that's through FTEs or through contract support, um, you know, that's something where uh, you the, the agency, you know. Will will need to be able to run that, and that's that's not something that's handled just at the very very tail end as an afterthought, right? Like that's you know that is a working partnership the entire way through, um, with people very aware of of what has to happen and where this is going. So, Joe, you don't code, but you acquire code. How does that ring for you? Well, so so it does and it doesn't. So so GS and I, GSA and I tend to differ in opinions on the edges a little, right? So I, I fully respect and appreciate the work GSA does in trying to make people share things that they've implemented or developed across the government um, and to be more agile and to move forward. But like, I think the idea of GSA running a government data center for unclassified systems is, is a misuse of government funds, right? Quite, quite frankly, I think we have Amazon, we have Azure. So I think there's a fundamental decision that we haven't really had the full discussion about yet in the government IT community. It's do we believe that government should only fill in the gaps where the industry has has a hole, or do we think that the government just does stuff in competition with industry? And I, I happen to believe that anywhere there's a industry provider, the government should not do it. So does that mean GSA should never run a data center? Well, of course, there are some things that make sense for the government to do. And it may make sense for the government to have a data center somewhere, and it certainly makes sense to have it shared. Um, but but I, I just it's a slippery slope because because the problem we have in government is the way people are rewarded. They're rewarded for growing programs, and and that's insane to me, right? When I'm in my private business, then yeah, I mean my I've said this earlier, right? My resume reads: I grew this company from three million to forty million. I grew this company from seven million to twenty million. I want the government part of my resume to read: I took this IT budget from sixty million to thirty million, right? The goal of every government executive should be to shrink their program, and and so I think the the, the problem with sometimes the way we approach these things is we reward people for growing programs and and and. I just think there are very few apps that need to be written by the government or by government contractors in Java, right? Like, or in C++, right? I think there are, I think the next generation, and part of this goes to where the technology is. So if you look at the definition of platform as a service and the definition of software as a service, I would say they're both changing and merging to what I would, you know, you could call it platform as a service 2.0 or software as a service 2.0. But if you look at where the industry's headed, it's headed towards this SaaS platform that is a low-code, no-code platform where I can build apps. And, and I think sure. GSA is perfectly situated to help people develop apps in these low-code, no-code commercial SaaS environments and then share them across the government, right? So that we're not building the same task and tracking system, you know, in Microsoft or in Pega or in Salesforce 15 different times or 100 different times. But, but the idea of where I think you cross a line is when someone says, I'm going to build a task tracking system in Java and then put it on servers, right? I think that's crazy. All right, well, we've got a lot more to discuss here. I can see that, uh, but we're going to take a short break right now. Our guests today are Eric Mill, Senior Advisor, Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. Joe Paiva is Chief Information Officer at the U.S. International Trade Administration. And Doug Averill is the Global Government Business Line Leader at PEGA. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Our discussion is Jumpstarting IT Modernization in Government, sponsored by PEGA, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and Federal News Radio. 
Sega knows there's no one-size-fits-all for government legacy modernization. Future-proof your technology. Stop coding and start no-coding. In times of great change, you need low-risk. No more costly high-risk attempts to modernize. Meet your mission more efficiently with Pega, the software leader in case management, customer engagement, and operational efficiency. Pega is low-risk. Pega is customer-centric. Pega is empowering your employees. Learn how your government peers are leading the way with Pega at pega.com slash government. Welcome back to our discussion, Jumpstarting IT Modernization in Government, sponsored by PEGA, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Doug Averill, the Global Government Business Line Leader at PEGA. Joe Paiva is the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. International Trade Administration. And Eric Mill, a Senior Advisor for Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And before the break, we were talking about this kind of dichotomy between should the government code or have coded and then put it out for reuse across government, or as Joe mentioned, should the government do almost no coding, and since everything commercially is out there, for the most part, on these platforms. Uh, Doug, I'm going to ask you to maybe to cut the loaf here, and, and I mean, what do you see? Because are there gaps in what the government can buy? Because the functions that it needs just don't exist yet out there in the in the sure. platform world. And we talked a little bit before in the prior segment about um, defining and understanding a programmatic mission. So it starts with that. And then you can assess what exists in the marketplace. And there are some places where there's clearly a commercial off-the-shelf product that will do exactly what you need it to do. And that is really sort of the low-hanging fruit. And I, I, what I observe is that governments generally have already embraced a lot of that. Um, and there's a lot of government-wide government, ac government -wide acquisitions that support those types of things. At the other end is very specific needs to fulfill a mission where there may not be something where it's commercially available off the shelf. So what Joe was speaking about before was sort of this continuum of, of platform as a service and software as a service. And, and really what you want to look at is this continuum of what is commercially available, what can I install, which is a lot of what PEGA does uh, with government is, you know, is there things in our platform that you can use as accelerators or are there some of our applications that you can use to, to install that are going to do almost all of what you need. So that's sort of the, the initial gap fit. I mean, even the most COTS things generally are going to require some degree of configuration, whether it be branding or security integration, single sign-on, things like that. The other end is a very specific need for uh, a service that fulfills a mission. But generally what we see is that those can still be fulfilled within the platform. So for someone like us, where we actually um, develop, build, curate our uh, SaaS applications within the platform, it's sort of the best of both worlds, where you can start with a customer service, an operational uh, application, and then make sure that you can do all the rest of the configuration you need. But I think what we can all agree on in terms of sort of splitting the loaf is, let's not hand code things. Let's configure them in something that is, is transparent, is visible, is measurable, and ultimately facilitate facilitates collaboration between business IT and can be reusable. One of the things that's real key to us and what I see all over the place, we touched a little bit on in the prior segment, was around modularization. So this idea that applications have gone from individual sort of pieces, I wouldn't say silos because that's sort of a negative connotation, um, but really multiple applications support a mission. And as we're looking at bridging those applications to have sort of a seamless mission fulfillment, um, what we want to look at is the ability to um, go back and reuse pieces of this. So to kind of take an agile view of this, you, you really do need to eat the elephant one bite at a time. Missions are so complex that we kind of need to start modernizing over time. And I think one of the things that I see is real key to success to governments is when they look at modernization as a journey, not a destination. And one of the key things is making sure that everyone is traveling together on that journey. So that's, again, business and IT together. Yeah, Eric, so just to make an example out of all of this, there's lots of case management systems. And every government agency does case management in some manner, but they all have their little you know, twist on it, and each agency has particular rules and use cases for case management that might differ. The FBI is going to be different from the ITA, even though you both have a case model of the world, say, for example, for those 30,000 customers, just as the FBI has cases going. So 
Uh, I guess the question then is if there is a case management commercial platform with this low co model, low coding, no coding, low no, I should say, no, mod, uh, no coding, and then, uh, but yet you do work within that environment to make sure that it works for your environment. Uh, how, can any of that be preserved because you're working in a commercial platform f on behalf of your agency? Whose code is that? Yeah. Absolutely, right? So there is this, um, the tension between, you know, mission IT and enterprise IT mm -hmm. is not going away anytime soon, right? There are pressures for enterprise consistency and commoditization, and then mission areas will always want to optimize for the mission they're serving and their specific users. Um, those are, and, and both of those areas are also, like, have significant problems in the government today, right? Uh, Joe has already been talking about how a, a lot of agencies you know, have uh, there's a clear tendency over time for people to have written a lot of custom software because they just want it to be right for them that could be done with a commodity piece of software and that, that costs the government a lot of money. Um, and then in the mission area, right, there's when folks go after mission IT, um, there has been a strong tendency to, you know, do large monolithic multi-year procurements, right? So both focusing on both of those in their different ways are going to save the government a lot of money ultimately Ultimately, I think have less code written, um, but I think you know in the example that you gave, you know if 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 an agency thinks that a particular system that is going to be used for a core enterprise function, you know it gets it ninety five percent of the way there, but that five percent is really important to them. You know one thing they can prioritize is that the the service that they acquire has APIs so that they can connect it to other systems that can fill that gap for them, potentially other commodity systems, and they could put those things together. Sometimes that can just be done, you know, point and click, and you know, you can wire different feeds together in different ways. Sometimes it might require a little bit of custom code, you know, a script that you want there to just do the glue work between these systems. Um, and that's something that I think, uh, you know, in, a, in a way, you can empower more embrace of commoditization if you're able to tackle those rough spots where, the, where it, it abrades the mission and help solve that for them. Yeah, Joe, maybe an example of that would, for ITA is you switch to a commercial provider for a certain function, get rid of the legacy code, but you still have data that might be required by the new application because uh, at one time data was generated solely by applications. So you've still got all those 30,000 companies that you're dealing with, or 300,000. You don't want to lose the data associated with those even as the application under which you're using it goes away. So maybe that's an example of somehow you need to bridge your data with that new application. Yes, yeah, so I, would, I would agree with Eric. I mean, in that particular case, you can migrate data, but I, I agree with Eric in that it's the, the age of the API. And so one of the major qualifications we have for any uh, cloud service provider that we use is they have to have open and easy to use RESTful APIs to talk to. So all of our, and we, we are now at a point where we have multiple uh, cloud service providers and they all seamlessly integrate with RESTful APIs and we wouldn't buy them if they didn't, right? So I think Eric is absolutely 100% on target there. And I think he's on target about this mission statement thing it makes me laugh a little, right? So I, I've been out of government for a while in commercial space, but back in the early 90s, I was in the military. And when they first introduced the idea of the Joint Strike Fighter, and we had this mission conversation, right? And guys like me were like, no way in hell am I going to get like, support from the Air Force. They fly way high. They take forever to get here, blah, 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 blah. You know, Navy, Marines, we fought against Joint Strike Fighter left and right. Nowadays on the battlefield, someone calls for air support. They have no idea who's providing it and they don't care. It just comes, right? It's because the military figured out it was one team, one fight. One team, one mission. I think the civilian federal government needs to move a lot further down the path of one team, one fight, right? If you look at something like the economy, you know, if you're trying to improve the U.S. economy with a bunch of different administrations and a bunch of different departments mm -hmm. all operating independently, it will never work, right? It is one team, one fight. And we're doing that now, right? But, but I just think as a federal civilian government, we, we can go a lot further down that path at, of one team, one mission. And it, as you do that, 
then the software discussion becomes a little different, right? Because now I'm optimizing the software for the mission, not for the organization. And, and there is like this real nuanced thing. When people say, oh, it has to be optimized for my mission, they're saying the right words, but what they're really saying is, has to be optimized for my organization. And, and, and that's not the same thing yeah, as the optimizing the for the mission. That, you gotta make that distinction. Absolutely. Doug? Yeah, ultimately I think that's the best place for us to have the conversation when we work with governments is to be able to make that planful choice that Eric and Joe were talking about. Um, technology should be something that supports um, operations generally um, and generally fulfilling those legislative mandates that government has. So when, when government programs and agencies and ideally departments and beyond are working together on a single plan, it makes those technology discussions infinitely easier. And at that point you can say, do I want this technology to integrate with this one? Which is the best selection? That's, that's really the, the, the recipe for success in government. All right, uh, I, I guess that gets us kind of to the question of governance uh, of data, governance of applications, and especially if you develop something to an API offered commercially, can that piece of script be, you know, what's the governance for that? Is that owned by the government? Uh, wh where should it reside? It could be that it could be used by another agency, even though they have a totally different function, but, you know, same mission-related idea. Eric, how, how does that all sort out? Sure, uh, I mean, uh, to paraphrase Joe a little bit, right, one team, one dream, and software that, uh, that gets, even We're if it's- We're to make some bumper stickers. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think we have a custom emoji for that one in our, in our Slack. Um, so we, uh, in sharing code, right, so if, if software is written by the government, even if it's a tiny little script, um, that is, you know, that is owned by the American people generally, and is something that, even if it talks to a commercial API, it's not something that needs to be kept secret. And there are a number of little pieces. And you know, we, we do try to model this, and we work with a lot of other agencies, and, and this, is, this is becoming a less controversial thing every year, you know, reusing that information, making it available for other agencies to deploy, sharing how that software works, is just sort of uh, you know, basic collaboration and hygiene, right? And we, there, I, you know, I think one thing for folks to keep in mind too is, you know, even if you are, you know, this is just a script I put together. This isn't. We didn't. Uh, we haven't put this through. Like the the commits are not uh, are a little, um, you know, aren't, aren't squashed together correctly, or the the commit messages are a little slapdash, or like we haven't added enough comments yet. Those, sometimes those things can hold people up from, from sharing those things with other agencies. Like really basic human factors stuff um, will prevent really meaningful sharing and collaboration between agencies. I think that's something that needs to be overcome. Um, as an example, uh, one of the things that we have had a lot of work, uh, a lot of success collaborating with the Department of Homeland Security on is around uh, measuring encryption support as deployed on public agency web services. Right, so we. Uh, both of our agencies have a mission to look at how well uh, HTTPS is deployed uh, across the federal public web service service. And you know, th while we're both doing those things, the way in which we have uh, not only deduplicated work but also really deepened our actual collaboration and support is by using the same software. And we had to do a little bit of custom software for that because there wasn't a good open source library. That did exactly what we needed, but it wasn't it wasn't a major undertaking, and we both started working on that code. We both deploy it in our environments, and so that also benefits agencies because when we run our scans with that software, our agencies are producing identical results, and we're not confusing agencies with the outputs of this those things. This software to discover whether HTTPS is in fact being used. Yeah, that, being that used, the, being enforced, being strictly deployed. Yeah, and that is that is software that that we have published uh, and and we collaborate on. We we share uh, you know rights like commit rights on the software, and then. Thankfully, we have also seen folks from outside the government, um, even some organizations which are traditionally a little skeptical of, of the government, take on those tools and make use of them, submit bug fixes back to us. And it's the exact sort of thing that I think five years ago would have just you know, stayed deep inside the belly of an agency where it was written. 
But now we're not only uh, collaborating better as agencies, but we're also getting some of the benefit of open source from the public that, that you're supposed to. All right, before we go to a break, I just want to ask Joe a, a follow-up on that one, and that is, do you go shopping on the GitHub under the government domain for that when you need something, like we've discussed, that piece of bridge software or, or middleware? No, so absolutely. So it, it, two things. One is, um, GitHub and building on a no-code, low-code platform are not exclusive right. in any way, shape, way, or form. So we actually take the apps, you will, that, that we develop with low-code, no-code, and we put that on GitHub, and we share it. And GSA has been doing a good job of getting together a cloud best practices group to share those low-code. So even though some is a low-code, no-code app, there's still time, effort, and money that goes into developing it. And those should be shared, and we're starting to do a better job of that. We just need to do more of it. And, and I think that's very important, and we do do it, and we use GitHub, and we look on GitHub, and I think it's a really good thing. And there are other agencies, too. VA's up on GitHub. There's a lot of agencies now using GitHub very, I think, very successfully, right? All right, so we will continue to some of these points. Right now, we're going to take a short break. My guests today are Joe Paiva, Chief Information Officer of the U.S. International Trade Administration. Eric Mill is Senior Advisor for the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. And Doug Averill is Global Government Business Line Leader at PEGA. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Our discussion is Jumpstarting IT Modernization in Government. Sponsored by PEGA, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. PEGA knows there's no one-size-fits-all for government legacy modernization. Future-proof your technology. Stop coding and start no-coding. In times of great change, you need low-risk. No more costly high-risk attempts to modernize. Meet your mission more efficiently with PEGA, the software leader in case management, customer engagement, and operational efficiency. PEGA is low-risk. PEGA is customer-centric. PEGA is empowering your employees. Learn how your government peers are leading the way with PEGA at PEGA.com government. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Jumpstarting IT Modernization in Government, sponsored by PEGA, here on federalnewsradio.com and federalnewsradio1500 AM. My guests today are Doug Averill, the Global Government Business Line Leader at PEGA. Eric Mill is Senior Advisor for Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. And Joe Paiva is the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. International Trade Administration. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And I want to get into this a topic that Joe mentioned very early on in the discussion, and that is the journey maps, the understanding of what it is that the user really needs and wants and has to have as we deploy applications. Very different model from the old coding legacy model. And uh, so Joe, since you mentioned it, we'll go to you first, and uh, ultimately that's really what drives what it is that you deploy. So how do you get there? Well, yeah, for, for us, it's kind of a two-step process because the first is realizing that 99% of our end users are no longer people that work within the ITA. They're the actual small businesses out in the United States who want and use our services, As right? As we get into this digital services, digital, digital services delivery, world, right? Yeah. So, you, you, so the first thing that has to happen is you have to actually train the 1% to be able to know how to act as a proxy for the 99, right? So there's there's actually a training of staff in this new digital world, how to speak digital, if you will, because when it comes time to build the apps, so we use a completely agile environment where every two weeks is a two week sprint cycle. And the way we do that is we have business users who build user stories. And they, you know, they go through this whole grooming process, but every two weeks when they start, they're taking those user stories and doing them. So in order to get to the point where the business can do that, you have to first have business users within the agency who know how to get together customer focus groups, know how to ask them the right questions, know how to figure out what our customers want because government is no longer about navel gazing and, and feeding the government beast. It's about feeding the public's needs, right? Which is where it should have always been. And so those people have to be trained to understand what the public needs and then they have to be trained to translate that into things that can be coded, you know, these, these user stories and process maps. And that, that is a lot of training of the business people and it's a dedication of business resources 
to reach out and have these focus groups and document the results of those groups and and work side by side. These teams are no longer IT building the system. It's it's a joint IT business team working together. And every day that business person is watching this thing get built and looking at it and checking it against that user story. And so that's the, to me, that's the, the kind of the crux of it. Yeah, so Doug, do, do your customers tend to understand the fact that their customers have to be part of this whole continuum here? Yeah, that's one of the most fascinating things when I look across um, government. Um, it's really sort of where is that continuum. Most governments are in that, that point now where we really understand who the customer is. As Joe was saying, I mean, years ago it was writing 10,000 page requirements. Um, I actually saw a file cabinet of those the other day when I was traveling. Um, we've gotten away from that and really, um, I mean, I see governments working with us now um, embracing DevOps, sort of beyond agile, mm -hmm. but let's get, let's get really quick. And I think a lot of that is driven by this general um, appreciation, understanding for um, frequent updates, frequent releases. And the, the analogy is sort of the thing I always talk about is how often do you get an app update on your phone? I mean, it's almost every day there's another app that's got an update. You may look at it, you may not. Next time you open it, there's new functionality. And that sort of mindset and that expectation is, is what is really, I think, firmly getting entrenched in government. So when it comes to sort of bringing in customers and understanding how to bring the requirements into an application, we move beyond big stacks of, well, what does the legislation say and what do the rules say and what do our lawyers say to, we know why we're here. And I see that all the time. As a former civil servant myself, very passionate about making sure that we're both following the, the law and the intent of the mission, but also serving the public. But now it's a question of how can I bring the public in? So we see in projects um, customers working together, picking up a system, and actually we've had Pega Systems applications that have been developed by one customer, zipped and emailed to another, and they're deployed and then implemented or configured on further. Um, and you're kind of getting all of that residual knowledge and that best practice along with it. And then we see people bringing in law enforcement officers. I've been into um, scrum rooms where there have been people in uniform because they're getting playbacks. I mean, how refreshing is that in government that we're involving everyone, not just, again, the lawyers and the policymakers, but the people who are actually going to hold the tablet in their hand or are going to use the system or answer the phone? Yeah, and Eric, so the people that come to the technology transformation service you would presume they have this in mind already, do they? And, and how do you make sure they get their heads around it? Well, so I, I f we find that uh, it is, people generally get this idea intellectually that, and it's very hard to argue with, that you should probably interview users and get their feedback and incorporate it into the development process. Uh, I think where the rubber hits the road and where things get challenging is when it comes time to actually pay for that instead of paying for other things, right? And I don't, you know, partly, yes, like if they're working in a paid arrangement with us, it's, it's how that fits into the money they're paying. But I also mean internally, right? Like we have people who work full time for us whose job and expertise it is, is to do usability research, set up user interviews, synthesize that work into something that's actionable. Um, and so we employ those people, right? They're, they're actually part of our budget. Um, and that, that is actually what it takes. And I, I think in part when it comes down to making that, that kind of money decision, that kind of prioritization, there's a human factors component, right? Is the people who, are, who have the idea for the project and who are the product owner, like they kind of think they're right already <laughs> about what they want to build um, if you really start asking them to spend money. And I think getting past that has been, been a big thing. Um, we certainly do a lot of that work. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, even for our own products, right, if we're, we have a, a single sign-on platform that we're developing for citizen accounts, uh, a, including a very wide variety of, of citizens in different situations. So we go to libraries, right, and we actually go and see how people whose computer use is primarily in public libraries use the applications that we're building. We'll show people prototypes. Um, we will do this work. And it is extremely valuable. And actually, I also think it's a little bit to get back to a point Joe made earlier about every mission thinking that they're kind of a special snowflake. You know, one of the most useful outcomes of this kind of usability research uh, can be to show demonstrably that actually the thing that you're trying to solve has been solved, at least most of the way, before. And you could probably be better served instead of developing a big new thing by going in that direction. Sure. Doug? Yeah, I would just add to that. I think that's spot on. But it's great to have that expertise up front. I mean, I absolutely see that as a best practice, as Eric was mentioning. But I think that I see, uh, one of the things I see as a success factor is a recognition that 
in any large um, project, whether you're installing a COTS, configuring a platform, working with modifiable off the shelf, you might miss a customer, you might miss a perspective. So you really need something that's flexible and you need to be able to then go back and iterate quickly because it's not sort of a one and done. It's a, um, we're gonna get our best minds together, we're gonna map out everything we know and then be ready to, to, to modify and configure as we go forward. Yeah, Joe, have you had some surprises in doing this research as to what the companies out there dealing with ITA need and want and hope to do uh, that maybe something that didn't occur to you as you look for their journeys? I'm not really qualified to answer that, right? Because it's, it's, it's really more the, the business people who know them. And I think, I don't think there's anything they've asked for that surprised everyone, but there's a lot of things they asked for that surprised someone. Does that make any, does that it make any sense? Because you have 3,000 people in the ITA and they all, you know, Tarek's point, they all pretty much know what they think the customer needs, right? And they're all 90% right usually. It's, it's the 10% that, that kind of throws people off, I think, most of the time. But and it could also be the 10% that people that would cause the public, the member that you're serving, you know, the constituent to say, boy, they're, they're really sharp versus forget about dealing with them. Well, and that's it. And, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but it, it, it kind of all goes back to making the argument for this next generation of SaaS development environments because when you're talking about iterating quickly, if you're still writing Java code and compiling stuff and you know then going through that process before you deploy it, um, there's nothing like you know doing configuration in a SaaS pass platform. Um, and there's a bunch of them out there, right? This isn't just about any one vendor. We use four or five of them. There's nothing like being able to do that, show it to someone, they see it, they like it, and it's in production 30 seconds later. And that, and that, when you can make those kind of changes on the fly, and when you have that platform and everybody's apps are built on the same platform, so they're seamlessly integrated in real time, that's a powerful, powerful place to be in terms of actually managing your customer base and your information. All right, so getting it right, and getting it quickly and getting it deployed out there and using reusable components and using the low code, no code platforms. Uh, why then, and we can kind of finish up on this, is the number that, that is so intractable in government this, and that is the ratio between operations and maintenance high and development of new things low. Can these methodologies we've been discussing get us to that nirvana where that ratio flips? Is I have to just, that is a ridiculous ratio that someone came up with and thought it was meaningful, <laughs> and it means nothing. Those terms but mean- it has been enshrouded It's been enshrouded, though. but it's, it's a stupid policy because it means nothing. So compare the, compare the investment versus operation and maintenance cost of Amazon to GE. They'll be very different. So what your business does, if, you know, if I use nothing but SaaS out of the box, then my development costs quickly go towards zero. And everything is O&M. My annual subscription is O&M. So to say O&M is bad, development and modernization is good, is just a crazy, a crazy oversimplification of a much more complex problem. If someone wants to say, how much money am I spending to support legacy government-coded applications that don't deliver and aren't secure. Isn't that what I said? Versus how much. <laughs> but no, I, I get irate about this because O&M, because the way government accounting systems are set up, that ratio, that, that everyone wants a 22 caliber answer for a 44 magnum problem, right? And it doesn't work that way. You can't just look at O&M and DME. You have to look at what you're actually spending money on. Are you spending on legacy? Or are you spending on good stuff? And that, that is not an O&M app dev conversation. It, it's just the way the accounting works. I guess maybe two twenty twos would equal a forty four <laughs> with both well, hands. I'll take the forty four. You take the twenty two. We'll see who wins this fight, right? The, uh, all right, uh, Doug, your perspective. Yeah, I think it, at the end of the day, what we can all acknowledge is that you get sporadic and sometimes small amounts of really transformational 
um, appropriation. So when you get something, you need to make sure that you're not doing a 10-year uh, a project that may or may not go someplace. What we're talking about is making sure that IT modernization is a journey and it's not a single buy. So when we've everything we've talked about from DevOps to agility to automation to business process management to having a, a SaaS and pass and modifiable off-the-shelf platform, it all supports making sure that IT modernization continues so that when you do get money, whether it's 5%, 50%, whatever the ratio may be, that it becomes something that is truly transformational and moves you forward in the eyes of ITA, your customers, your internal stakeholders, whoever that may be. So it's when you get money, make sure that you're doing it in the space, that the, the place that's going to get you the, the most leverage. All right, Eric? Yeah, I think it goes back to the very first question that you asked in the first segment, right? At about, uh, and for me, that's agility, automation, and sharing, right? So if you, the, the, without comment on the specific metrics and ratios that people have looked at or published, like, it is, it is non-controversial to me to, to look at how uh, a lot of federal IT operations run and see people saturated with manual maintenance work. Um, and some of in, people but people choose that people often want that maintenance work they want those touch points because they want to feel like they are overseeing things they want to feel in control of the systems that are around them and there there is often an unwillingness to just you know have a script do that or have a have have uh, some serverless thing do it or or farm that job out to Amazon or something like that um, and I think that's that's what has to happen and I would also say that you know, shared services is is a is a clear win, right? So if you if you are using shared services where, for example, different layers of patching are done for you, and you don't have to think about that, that is less maintenance. And if you're sharing code and software, and you're actually getting bug fixes from different agencies together, that is less work, that is less maintenance. All right, a lot to chew on. We're going to have to conclude our discussion now. I want to thank today's guests. Doug Averill is the global government business line leader at Pega. Joe Paiva is the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. International Trade Administration, and Eric Mill, Senior Advisor at the Technology Transformation Service in the General Services Administration. I'm Tom Temin, Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. For more on this discussion, to view the whole thing in its entirety, go to federalnewsradio.com, use the search term PEGA. Thank you for listening to the Jumpstarting IT Modernization in Government panel, sponsored by Pegasystems on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. The entire discussion is available on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search Pega.